Welcome to the Live Lightly Podcast. Awareness to integration to elevation. Sue and Dan open intimate and complex spaces together, discussing integration from physical, emotional, and spiritual levels. Expect conversations that are honest, expansive, and solution-oriented. Everything from consciousness design to biohacking to socio-political deep dives. Creative works and building a new paradigm in relationship through daily choices. Check out the show notes for more info about Sue and Dan, plus our guests. Welcome to this week's Live Lightly podcast. Dan and Sue here sitting in a rainy Taos, New Mexico. Yes. So if you hear that on the background, no big deal, just some rain. And what are we talking about today, Sue? We are talking about all things commercial spirituality and lifting the veil on commercial spirituality. Oh, lifting the veil. So we're going to kind of peer into the inner workings, behind the scenes, a little bit about our personal experiences, a little bit about transitory nature, why I wrote certain sections of the book and was adamant about debunking new age spirituality throughout the whole book. Totally. So debunking new age spirituality, that's, that's huge. Yeah, it's a big topic, but it's something that we're going to have to work with moving forward, you know, commercialism and commercial spirituality. So the commodification of spiritual practice um, is something that is super prevalent and is going to continue to be super prevalent inside our extractive capital society. So it's like, how do we work with it and how do we move forward with it? Totally. I mean, commodification of everything in this day and age, right? Yeah. So why would spirituality be any different? So what are, um, like, what are some of your experiences? What are some of the, uh, kind of hurdles that you went through in your, you know, your path leading up to this point that kind of led you to have this opinion or these opinions of commercial spirituality? Yeah, definitely. So little background, I don't often tell this story very much, but I found yoga when I was 13 and I found Buddhism when I was 11 And I found much more of commercial spirituality when I was 13, 14, because I had herniated L4, L5. And so I was looking for a way to rehab. And so I immediately got into the yoga studio environment. How did you find Buddhism when you were 11? Just curious about that. That seems really, really young. Yeah. Um, My mom used to take us to Barnes and Noble and Mm -hmm. hop us up on hot chocolate with all of the fixings and let us roam around and for some reason I was always in the like occult spirituality section, even as a middle schooler, you know, reading about ghosts and spirits and all that kind of stuff. And so obviously adjacent to the occult section is spirituality section. And I found a small book uh, called simple Buddhism, I think. And it was just quotes really like a small pocket book almost. So very digestible for my little mind at the time. Nice. You don't still have that book, do you? I don't still have that book. I've, I've lived all over the world and we live tiny. Yeah. <laughs> Many books went away during the process. It'd be cool to revisit now. Yeah, totally. I think that's the title. It's like a pink cover. Right on. Okay, mm-hmm. so you find Buddhism when you're 11. You find more sort of like new age commercial, uh, I'm sorry, commercial yoga studio mm-hmm. kind of vibe when you're 12, 13. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my mom used to drop me off at the studio. I was really young. And there weren't many yoga studios at the time, even when I was an undergrad. So we can just sort of fast forward a little bit. 
commercial yoga really hadn't hit the scene yet in the United States. And there was a, a few mom and pop studios, maybe sometimes just one studio per city. And that was something that you really had to search for. You know, like sometimes I would drive 40, 45, 50 minutes to the other side of a city, especially when I was in Connecticut, to get to a studio. Bikram had hit the scene, but still, they were few and far between. Yeah. So mm-hmm. access was a lot more difficult then versus now where it's obvious. Oh, it's like know. every corner now. Yeah. Or a boutique gym every corner now. But yes, it was something right. you really had to seek out. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And then what about you? How did you find yoga, yogasana? Yeah. Uh, I found it f- initially, I would say probably the first five years I was, you know, air quote, practicing yoga was very much just utilitarian. And I wouldn't necessarily even say I was practicing yoga as more uh, just going to group st- stretching classes. Mm-hmm. Like a workout class. Yeah. Not so much for working out, but I was um, playing baseball at the time still. And, um, I'm, I mean, you know me now, I'm just like kind of like a chronically tight person. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I, I used it more as just, uh, from the stretching aspect. And then, you know, as you're in the studio three, four or five times a week, all of a sudden you kind of start to get a little deeper into it. And I started noticing some just like weird things that were very off putting in that environment. Um, You know, it was, I was in my early 20s, the teachers, girls in their young 20s, uh, 40, 50 people in a class, leaving class. And it was like super clicky. And then you'd have the teacher like talking shit with her friends about, you know, some girl's pants or something in the class. And it's just kind of like, what what is this all about? It seems Mm kind of weird. So I kind of got out of the studio scene um, after just, you know, being really, it was, it was super off-putting, you know, at that point I'd started to kind of dabble with meditation, mm-hmm. you know? So like going to those classes wasn't so much just, Hey, I'm going to stretch. There was like, I could say now looking back, like a spiritual component was developing for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, sort of like the extracurricular BS in the studio just like really turned me off to that whole thing. So I pretty much just then started practicing on my own you know years go by I meet Sue um, you know we we're kind of doing our thing together and then we uh, I do the 500 hour training mm-hmm. that was cool and then I started kind of going on like my own little personal retreats and went down to a, uh, a Zen center and for a three day and you know I'm thinking it's going to be this like really cool super thing. Stoic. Super stoic. Yeah. You know, everyone's here for the same reason I am. And like everyone's super respectful and there for the right reasons. Right. And, and then, you know, dinner night one, I'm getting hit up by these people like, well, where have you studied before? Who's your, who are your teachers? Have you been to this center? Have you done that? Oh, wow. You haven't done any of these things. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just a spiritual baby, you know, and kind of like making me feel like it's insignificant because I haven't you know, purchase something from all these different places, essentially. Yeah. And then the next day we go in to meditate and this lady that's like just beating me up with these questions. Mm-hmm. Somehow I find myself uh, sitting next to her. That's the beauty of retreat. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, pop up on the Zabaton doing my thing. We, it, it was like two 25 minute sets, like, you know, mellow. Mm-hmm. This lady is like pulling out sleeping bag things and like her iPad and a heating pad and like this special chair and all this shit. And she's like rustling her little sleeping bag, like every four and a half seconds. 
Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was ridiculous. So I'm sitting here thinking like, you know, you're going to tell me about how accredited you are and how, how spiritual you are and how much of a meditator you are. And you can't even sit still for like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it really opened my eyes to sort of the reality of the spiritual world that we're in now and uh, sort of the pitfalls of commercialism in spirituality. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Side note, when you're saying the sleeping bag thing on all the meditation retreats that I've taught in the intro rule guidelines, I say do not bring a puffy jacket and do not wear one into the sendo. What's crazy is that you have to say that. <laughs> or like, don't unwrap your candies one minute in. Maybe do it before the set starts. <laughs> just PSA there. Yeah, just pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you coming back from that retreat and it was sort of like the download of, you know, that's the first time you had really ever gone on intensive in that way where there's people from all over the world that have been, you know, using air quotes here, studying Zen or spirituality or Buddhism or yoga or their yoga teacher. They've done yoga teacher training or whatever it is coming from all over the world and then seeing them in the small microcosm of that discussion totally right and all of the weird sort of accreditation and egos that come up yeah you know that really is a byproduct of the way that we keep commercial spirituality as alive alive as consumers is you know big chains offer massive massive trainings or teachers that now have big organizations underneath them and some are amazing and some aren't Mm -hmm. you know i'm not making a, a label judgment here i'm literally just saying this is how it works is you know you take training upon training upon training and then once you get really invested in that brand i prefer to call them brands in america not lineages then you are a consumer for life Mm-hmm. you know, of those products, those teachings, those things. And so the whole uh, system is really built sort of top heavy in that way. And it dangles the spiritual carrot of like being able to move up or create some level of success. Um, and this is also very culty. You know, you have to understand sort of cult dynamics in the way, oh, well, when you get to this level, then you can do. Mm-hmm. Or when you get to this certification, now you can offer you know exactly yeah and there's a very interesting dynamic then that you're fully emotionally financially invested almost in debt at times yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that's an interesting way to look at it yeah definitely yeah i mean at the time i think i had read cutting through spiritual materialism maybe two or three times which is both dan and i's second favorite spiritual book after transitory nature transitory nature by (laughs) sue hunt available on audible i'm just kidding but, yeah, that's a joke. But uh, in all seriousness, cutting through spiritual materialism was eye-opening for me as well. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. total game changer. Um, it's a book that I still revisit probably every 12 Children months. Trumpa, Rinpoche. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he's been canceled or not. I'm not, I'm not advocating yeah. for him as a teacher, but his teachings in the book are profound and I think are relevant now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, but seeing, you know, reading the book and, and reading all these examples of, of spiritual materialism and materialistic behavior, but then actually being able to see it in action was, you know, I can look back now and see it as it was a very beneficial experience at the time. It was a little bit demoralizing. Yeah, a bit honestly. of a bummer. A bit of a bummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And but, it makes uh, you wonder if you'll ever buy that product again, you know, using that word on purpose. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of just shakes your ground that you're on, you know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, I thought this place was supposed to be... And, and, and again, I think, I think it was a good, um, you know, personally to check expectations, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was lessons in that, obviously. But uh, in terms of the, you know, going into community and this sort of like pissing contest of, you know, I've studied with this person. Yeah. I can recite more text than you. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, that whole, I can do this in the locker room or at the crag. Like I don't, I need a context shift. That's why I came here. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it was just, uh, it was, it was definitely eye opening. Yeah. You know, and, and I know that you've had that eye opening experience and, um, you've been in this world a lot longer than I have to the point now where you were actually able to write about some of these issues that you see in spirituality in your book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that was, really the driving force. I've spent more than half my life inside new age spirituality, you know, traditional yoga, Western yoga, um, studying yoga all over the world and very diverse settings. And so to be able to really compare and contrast a lot of those settings and then also tap deeply into my own sadhana and ethics that were birthing out of my own study that I wasn't really seeing um, that be upheld across the board in, in any form in commercial spirituality at all. And so that was definitely a gripe that I wanted to bring forth in the book. And that's why I have so many myth debunking sections, because when you spend, you know, I'm 35. And so you you can imagine I stepped into my first yoga studio at 13. That means the platitudes that have been chucked at me for more than half my life are just insanity, just absolute insanity. Can you give us a few examples of those platitudes? Yeah, I mean, we were sort of just prepping for this one, you know, like be present, my crown chakra's lit, you know, my heart chakra's open. I'm manifesting. I'm manifesting, you know, uh, I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. Yeah. I have, I, it was hard to pick just three per chapter, not going to lie. Sure. So let's, let's do some delineation here. So that way we just don't seem like we're coming off as shit talkers. Of course. It's like, what, what do you mean? Where, where's the issue in those platitudes? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if when you feel like you are manifesting something that's not platitudinal, that's that's a legit, that's like a legit felt sense, well, right? I don't know. I try really not to use that word. Right. I do use it sometimes, and I record all my one-on-one sessions, so I can hear when I use it, you mm-hmm. know? And I do use it sometimes, much more in the context of when I'm relating to someone else's auric field and I need them to understand a behavior change or a totally different, like a quantum leap that they've made in their consciousness understanding, then I feel like it's appropriate to use it. But in terms of um, like a physical gains or something that you, like when you say, I want to manifest, right? Sometimes we use that as like a job or a house or I've heard countless, countless spiritual teachers or new age spiritual guides use that word. A partner, money, whatever. Yeah. Over and over again. A dog, you know, like... Manifest a dog. Yeah. Like I want to manifest a puppy, like things like that. That that sounds very off-putting to me. That literally means like, no, how about you just save some money and figure out how you can bring a dog into your life? Probably just go to the pound and grab one and take care of it. You're in service to it. You know, it's not this like I'm a a beam of spiritual magnetism and I'm grabbing everything towards me. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the context that we use it very often. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So how, you know, you, you've taught all all over the world. Mm -hmm. 
Um, when you say commercial yoga, are you referring to global or is this just like That's more a of a question. Western issue? Well, to be 100% clear, uh, Swami Vivekananda was the first Eastern sage or teacher you know, people might not use the word sage for him, that came to the America in the Parliament of Religions and was actually speaking on Neo-Vedanta, which is a really sort of traditional, you know, tunnel vision almost of Eastern spirituality and Vedanta itself, like neoliberalism, Neo-Vedanta, mm -hmm. you know, very, very specific. And so that was really the first little taste that Westerners were able to receive of Eastern mysticism if they hadn't, hadn't traveled there themselves, right? And that was something like 1934. He's the author of Raja Yoga, um, which means King Yoga. So there you go, you know, like very um, coming in with intensity and like, this is the right way. And, and this is how we think about it and should think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, we have historically many, many Eastern teachers coming over. And this is not to demonize them, but to teach for profit. Because inside, um, like when I was in Nepal, right, there's this idea that spirituality and the teachings of Hinduism and Buddhism are built into the social fabric of the society. And so, you know, the monastery is a bit of a, a social enterprising establishment where it helps communities, it, it educates children, like it has a real role inside um, the politics of the entire country. And that's very different in the United States, right? So when a teacher comes through and they say, I have all this knowledge, right, we pay for those teachings mm -hmm. in the West. And that's really how commercial spirituality began, is that like, Ram Das, right? Marajaji, like these teachers, he went to see his teacher in India and then came back and continued to teach about it in the late sixties, early seventies and throughout his life. And he's a prolific teacher for many people. So again, not demonizing this, but showing the evolution of how commercial sp spirituality really got its heels in the dirt in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So has there been sort of the, uh, reverberation back to those Eastern cultures where it was very much entrenched in their society, like you were saying? Yeah, that's you, 100%. That's such a good question. Have you seen it sort of become this commercial thing there as, as it has? Yes, there's in, a in lot the of back and forth um, because uh, American values, using the words white supremacy in a valuable way in this place, is that are being radically outsourced all over the globe. And so when I was in India, you're seeing people carrying yoga mats, you're seeing hot yoga studios pop up, things that didn't exist. Like carrying a yoga mat was like, no way, Jose, what is a yoga mat? Right. You know, like I go to the temple to do these things and take care of myself. It's built into the social fabric of what I'm doing. And now here all of a sudden we are really just selling yoga asana, really birthed in the U.S., and in South America a little bit, Indra Devi, a student of Krishnamacharya, one of the first female students actually to teach on a huge, huge level. She really started centers in um, South America. And one of the teachers I studied was Swami Radha, a student of Swami Shivananda, really started centers in British Columbia. So I'm, I'm not trying to be super American-centric, but South America, North America, Canada. Right. Yeah. West of the origin. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So just... Because we're on the subject of it, you know, how do you, how do you see this playing out over the next 30, 40 years? 
Well, I think we're still in the upswing, but I'm really hoping the bubble pops. Upswing of further growth, increasing just the growth commercialization. of commercial spirituality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of, you know, social media dramatically affected it. I felt really lucky to be in the yoga world before social media, the dawn of social media, Mm -hmm. um, and really being able to see community form differently around teachers and uh, ethics in a different way than vanity metrics. And, you know, it's very, very different now than it was maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say so, even just in the... Yeah, I mean, what do you think? I mean, we've both seen so many sort of chains and studios... Like live what do and I think die is, is going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I was, I was asking you out of like honest intrigue because oh, okay. I, yeah. I truly have no idea. Um, I do think it will get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's define worse a little bit. Sure. I, I think it's going to get a lot more commercial before it gets more authentic. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, uh, those adjectives are mutually exclusive in this sense, you know, what's, what's the old adage, uh, practice in a cave, no windows, tell no one. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, if you don't post your practice on Graham, did it actually happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, totally. So, the, so the shift uh, culturally and societally in this country, I, I can only really speak to this country, but, mm-hmm. uh, we have a long way to go, I think in terms of, of, remediating this issue yeah definitely you know and getting back to like people i was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they were like man the world would just be a lot better place if everyone just got back into practicing and you know that all sounds great but in reality that is just like don't even waste your time speculating or like trying to throw out these hypothetical scenarios because that's that's ridiculous like the whole world practicing come on Mm -hmm. it's not gonna happen yeah that's not going to happen. But in terms of when are we going to see maybe uh, a backslide in the in the commercial um, spirituality industry? And I think that really comes down to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And you can answer that question, when are we going to see a backlo- uh, backslide in the amount of processed foods when people stop buying them as much? Definitely. When are we going to stop seeing a backslide in commercial spirituality when people stop buying it as much? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it kind of did this weird morph through COVID, but before I don't really want to touch that. I just wanted to say that, you know, that it it did like a really funny about face and is now has a totally different sort of veneer on it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Increase the access tenfold, right? I mean, you could just log on your computer from your bed and, and have a million yoga classes at your fingertips. Yeah. And with that said, I've heard you say this before and I want to, I want to hear your thoughts. Um, and I know this isn't like a popular opinion, but I've heard you say yoga is not for everyone. Yeah, I don't think it is. What do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really sellable version of yoga. And I really want to critique that like intensely because you see massive social capital getting built off of teachers saying, or, or organization leaders or CEOs, because you want to see them as that at that level running a business of that size, you know, you really want to be clear on that of where, where you're consuming and why that yoga is for everyone. And 
it doesn't make you better or less than if yoga is or isn't for you. I think living a contemplative life can be done through many different avenues that do not include commercial spirituality. I 100% believe that. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to put a book out in the world right now. I think that's listed at $16 on Amazon, right? $14 for the Audible because you don't need to pay thousands of dollars to a huge entity and outsource your own study to a massive business that's telling you that yoga is absolutely for everyone. There's so many different types of um, yoga asana. I even like to just make sure that we understand the difference between living a contemplative life and buying a yoga asana product or buying a wellness product or buying a yoga product, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I, I just, I think that deep, deep contemplative practice is not for the faint of heart. And for you, it might be mountain biking. You know, for us for a while, it was being in the climbing community and totally seeing a different way of life that we wanted to be like. So we got like it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We got with it. We got in the flow of that. You you know, we didn't manifest anything. We got in that flow. (laughs) We wanted to learn about it. You know, so I think that there's many places that people can learn to live a contemplative life that isn't inside this huge extractive commercial system. And it's one of the reasons I left it as a yoga studio owner and a previous yoga studio owner. I just, I couldn't stomach it anymore and I wanted to get the F out of there. Yeah, good for you. And you're doing something different. Rewriting the wheel in your own way, right? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think it's necessarily about access. I think it's about the quality of what we're putting out and how that programs the consumer. Because I'm okay with everyone trying it. And this is awesome. One of my teachers, when I was in like sort of close community with him, sort of saw one of his master students like goofing off. And he looked at him and was like, if you're not into what I'm saying, you don't need to be here and you don't need to be paying for this. And you don't need to pretend like you're into this. You just need to get out of here. And you need to go find something else that you're super interested in because it's that interest, that passion that ignites contemplation. So if it's not me and it's not this, see you later, bud. And it was like the biggest teaching for me where I was like, wow, what a way to like reprimand him. Like, wake up, bro. If this ain't for you, it ain't for you. I'd rather you be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a really big moment for me as a young student. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And and what a lesson to just, you know, have that as like a barometer in the back of your mind when you're doing things of what is my actual motivation for why I'm sitting here right now. Yes, definitely. You could ask yourself that 24 times a day. Yeah, more than that. I mean, that's a big part of the attachment aversion binary is like understanding motive. Attachment aversion binary. That's in your book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right on. Let's dig into that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's applicable for this, but I think you can be really attached to Um, how the world perceives you as a spiritual being, that you are really deep into yoga, your meditation practice is really deep, or that you're going with the flow, or that you've got all the right clothes on, that you're wearing the malas, that you eat the right stuff. Like, this was something that I definitely pushed against a lot, even as a yoga studio owner, of, you know, just wearing khakis or jeans in to teach the class. And some people wouldn't take me seriously because I wasn't wearing a Lululemon Outdoor Voices top. Crazy. You know? And it was just kind of hysterical to me. I mean, obviously my business businesses didn't do super well because I was really <laughs> willing to push it and push it far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see? Um, the market itself is, is susceptible to this uh, commercialism, mm-hmm. right? And, and where do you see that stemming from? Is it, is it issues in like 
your root? Is it issues in your, where, where do you see that coming from? Yeah. I mean, I think that we don't have a clear understanding of how we consume and why. And so if you're very, if you do your due diligence on the type of consumer you are, you're probably going to see many different patterns across the board. If it's in the grocery store or if it's shopping for a spiritual yoga teacher training to do in India, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever it may be. And I think that, um, we, we don't really understand the student teacher relationship in this country and the depth that can be there. And we've outsourced a lot of our discernment as students and that's obvious in the demise of the guru and the seat of the Western guru and the way that that has just been so manipulated and abused. And, um, we were just talking about this in the car on the way here, like to prep for this podcast is that in your student teacher relationship or when you're going to seek information from someone else, you want to be the most discerning you've ever been as a student. You want to know as much as you can about that organization, that teacher, that platform, where they studied, who their teachers are, which is dramatically important. If they're willing to cite and credit other people, their humility, how they run their business, because make no mistake, business isn't evil. It's infiltrated the entire spiritual world, right? So we need to see how they parallel or really how they detract from one another. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not the time to be blindly optimistic. No, or um, like woad, if that makes sense, by by weird shit. Exactly. Yeah, like things I have looked for over time, which I think is really important. And, and I'd love to hear sort of how you decided you wanted to get out of the like the yoga scene or you said something, the extracurriculars. <laughs> I wanted to get out of the extracurricular BS. Um, but I agree. Those are things I looked for over time as well. And those are things that I tried to mitigate as a teacher in the space as well. And, and many people saw that as aggressive and intense because I was like asking people to leave in silence and come in silence and not comment on each other's clothing and absolutely no gossip. And, you know, would come say, Hey, wait, what's up? This is a sacred space. <laughs> like, why are we doing that here? Right. You know, lost many students because of that, mm-hmm. you know? Good for you. Yeah, but I think, what did you notice in the periphery that you were like, I'm out of here? Yeah, so I've, I've always kind of um, been someone who like really respects and admires the quiet person in the room that can just sit and observe, you know? Uh, I, I find those individuals intriguing, you know, where they don't have to front or project in some way or establish themselves and let themselves be known and whatever. Um And I really wasn't seeing too much of that in the, you know, air quote communities that I was involving myself in. It was like, like I said, very much a pissing contest of, oh, I'm better than you because Mm -hmm. my leggings are cooler or something just like Mm -hmm. super, super lame. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I just like, I, I could never, it never tasted right to me. I couldn't even fake it. Yeah, I mean, you don't fake anything well, babe. <laughs> no, but like walked out of many classes because, you know, you go in, roll your mat out. Let's like get in the, and it's like conversations, two mats down about the bar they're going to later or like the frat guys that they're hooking up with that night. It's just kind of like, oh, God damn, I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of like, cultish behavior and pure submission right to the teacher archetype like the just to roll up your mat and walk out 
Like that's really powerful and really effective and not many people do it. They'll sit through the entire thing and they'll, they'll leave and they'll wonder why they didn't enjoy it when 150 other people enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can say that uh, that wasn't necessarily the case for me and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, definitely. But that's what I mean by a strong level of discernment. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was in, I've done multiple teacher trainings myself. I've taught many, but I've also taken many. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I, I think I was young. I was really young and it was expensive and I had paid $350 to be in the weekend. And I just turned to the facilitator and was like, I got to get out of here. Like, I don't even need a refund. I don't even want to talk to the main teacher about a refund. I just need to just be 100% out of here. Right. Like, can't can't vibe with it, can't get down with it, not going to hang in because I paid for it. I actually don't even want to interface with him for the money back. Right. Yeah, I just kind of want to get out of here. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing when you find yourself in, in that um, sort of disagreeable of a, of a setting for your system. Mm-hmm. Like the, the retreat that I described at the beginning of this conversation... Um, I didn't actually ended up staying for the three days because on day two, listeners who don't know, I have a nut allergy, severe nut allergy. And, uh, for breakfast on day two, despite asking the staff if there was anything that would affect me in the food and they were like, no, no, you're cool. I got nutted. So I had to leave, (laughs) but it was, I think that was like what was supposed to happen there. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, energetically, I was absolutely rejected from that space. And I think that rejection was like the best thing possible. Mm -hmm. Like me assimilating into that would be a serious issue Mm -hmm. for me. Yes, yes. No, and I think that's important to understand of, you know, the teaching was that you got rejected. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Totally not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I mean by a level of discernment to not bypass the messages of your inner body when you're um, receiving a transmission from the space or from the teacher or from the sangha that isn't um, like lighting you up and actually turning your experience into contemplation right the the contemplation becomes on whoa this is actually really violent for me Mm -hmm. and now if i'm a spiritual being i'm going to to make a choice to address that yeah, the yeah. contemplation of how long will I overlook this and endure this. Right. And I think that's something to really consider in commercial spirituality because it is very cultish and I'm using that word on purpose. And when you're doing deep, deep meditative practice, even if it's tapped in, grounded, real or not, right, you're manipulating your ability to perceive and to perceive clearly and in, in an integral way with yourself. Totally. Mm-hmm. I think you did a really amazing job in your book of, of uh, sort of fleshing this out when you, I think it's chapter six, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, when you start getting into a root deprivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that is just, it's powerful. I'm not going to take your words. I'll let you talk about it. But to me, that seems like the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I agree. Or one of the pandemics currently. Yeah, I think in the chapter, I really use the words root, de- root deprivation, crown fetitization, and uh, the gates of contemplation are breaking the binary section. So what is, can you describe root deprivation? Yeah, so I really wanted to look at money, sex, power, because those are things that I've seen thrown around in front of my face and reading about it and hearing about it, you know, and firsthand accounts of um, 
commercial spiritual spaces really abusing money, sex, power. And as a consumer of spirituality and new age spirituality, uh, that's something that I really wanted to raise the consciousness around and do that in a way that felt very uh, purposeful and intense because we need it. We really need it right now. We need to tip the scales. We don't need X thousands more teachers coming out of these kinds of programs, right? right. right? We don't need that. We, we really need um, home practice, personal practice, personal sadhana, and that then you have the ability to discern what teachers and communities are beneficial and transformative for you and which ones are abusive. Okay. Yeah. So what is root deprivation? Yeah. So root deprivation really deals with the bottom three chakras. And I go through this in integrated being, and it really explains our sort of extractive take, take, take understanding around money, sex, power. And then in the end of the chapter, I really have us look at what is the return, what is the exchange, and what is the reciprocity, you know, really understanding how you're consuming based on those three gates, as opposed to take, 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 or overgive. Mm. So do you see commercial spirituality as something that is appealing to that root deprivation? Definitely. I think all consumerism does. Yeah. You know, I think all consumerism does. And that's why I put root deprivation after pranic economy because I wanted you to understand the type of consumer that you are yeah. in the places that you consume from. So, because it's no different when you go to, you know, buy a shirt to that you're going to wear to yoga class mm-hmm. than when you are, I don't know, getting gravel for your driveway. Right. Like I'm using that example on purpose. Like you really want to understand why you're consuming and how you're consuming. Yeah. Would it be a stretch to say that it's sort of like appealing to, the naivete, like almost as if, you know, buying your way to heaven, buying your way to enlightenment, buying your way to, you know, air quote, inner peace and like these sort of kind of things. Yeah, 100 percent. And I and I think that really parallels our understanding of uh, organized religion as well, mm-hmm. you know, and that there is a hierarchical understanding of who has done what and who's been with who and who's studied what and who's at what level and who has what degree and who's where in the church or who's where in the spiritual sanghar, who's the assistant, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that really gives um, these immediate identity markers of what value looks like inside that community. And that is what you need to be really, really discerning about. You want to look for what those value markers are and you want to say, is this cool with me? Does this resonate for my spiritual ethic? Mm -hmm. Not how do I move up in the value markers? Yeah, Yeah. totally. So what would be some... uh... Do you have any sort of, you know, self barometers for, oh, I'm, I have some deprivation in my root zone that is... Well, we all do. We all do, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. that I am sort of unconsciously or inadvertently reaching out to acquire, right? Mm-hmm. Because of that uh, like discrepancy or, or lack. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most simple ways to describe that is you can look at how much more complex spiritual practice has become. Does that make sense? Like you need a new bell, you need a new whistle, you need a new cosmic carrot. Like, you know, (laughs) cosmic carrot. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Like, and they are constantly getting thrown at you. Like if I'm being a hundred percent honest right now, sometimes I have felt like trainings or programs or communities I've been in. It's like Mario. Mario? Yeah, like a video game. Like how so? Like I'm trucking along, I'm doing everything they're saying, and then it's like 
ding, 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 ding. Like I got the new thing. I got the new shirt. I got the new outfit. You know what I mean? And then now I'm moving up a level. Watch out for the Goombas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a hundred percent serious, you know? And, and if you're in that kind of a rat race reward deprivation situation, that's when you know everything is stemming from deprivation because you have to attain the reward to ignore the deprivation. That only happens for a short period of time. Then all of a sudden we need the next thing. Yeah. So you're always looking for the external validation on your own internal spiritual practice. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that can be with lots of students or, you know, that could be with lots of certs or the right kind of clothes. Totally. Yeah. Or reading the right people or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. And he does a phenomenal job in spiritual materialism when he's describing the teachers, uh, Mara and Milarepa and, and really the path. I mean, we're, we're talking all the way to the edge of suicide that the teacher's driving the student. And I'm not saying that's the right way or the safe way, but what it does do is give you an example of, whoa, like I actually have to be willing to tread in the waters of destruction in in a very uh, self-sustaining way. This isn't like a shiny endeavor where I get new things when I pass go. Yeah, it, the spirituality he describes in that book is a stark contrast to, I think, what is, you know, the reality of today. And you want to read those stark contrasts, you know, if you're on the path and that's a platitude. Like, what the fuck? What path, you know? Like, it's your life. That's it. No one else knows about it. <laughs> Really, no one else knows the inner workings of it. So how could anyone else totally be your guide? That's why I mean, as a consumer, you have to be so, so discerning. These are even times, even when I'm in the one-on-one space with students, like they'll bring other teachers work to me and ask me questions about it. And well, he said, and she said, and I learned, and someone told me, and what teacher training should I take? And all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, whoa. You know, here you are asking another teacher for another teacher's advice on a, on their another teacher's teachings. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the lack of compass that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I remember in that book he was talking about how I think it was Naropa went to Milarepa mm-hmm. or maybe vice versa. Yeah. It was like, renounce your previous teacher and then you can be my student. <laughs> yeah. And everybody else did. And he was like, get the hell out of here. You're just going to renounce me when... When the next teacher says uh, something, you know? I mean, that's such a brilliant example. Wow. And that's something really profound to think about because it's not that you want to like denounce teachers. You learn things and you learn like, oh, that might not have been the best path for me. And I've definitely walked away from teachers. But what what he was doing in that little anecdote is like testing the cosmic carrot idea. Of Testing literally. the conviction. Exactly. The conviction, the loyalty, but even above that, because that can get weirdly cultish, is that like we're, that you're just like switching up for the next better thing. That's mm-hmm. what he was testing. Yeah. You know, not lack of loyalty or anything like that, because you are going to walk away from teachers and you are going to walk away from sanghas and you need to be comfortable and happy that you did that. Yeah, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's a, that example is such a good example in the book. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about it today. <laughs> so in chapter six, you, you address um, root deprivation and root deprivation, deprivation being one of the causes that leads to this sort of outsourcing for external to bring into your own spirituality is that mm-hmm. it, the only validating factor. Um, 
And then you, you also address crown. Mm-hmm, totally. In that chapter too, right? Yeah. Crown escapism is, I give you like a crown escapism checklist so that you understand, um, like where you're over spiritualizing things, where there's too much self-importance, where there's too much egoic clinging to being a good yogi or good, good spiritual person, or, you know, like a, a valid practitioner or a valid lay person. And that you understand, um, that it's somewhere in the middle between your root issues and that it, it's that crown energy. You don't manifest anything. This is what's just so bonkers to me from having, you know, really read lots of texts and, and worked with my own personal energy over time is that it, it doesn't really, doesn't stem from your self will and your want and crown energy is actually a hundred percent receptive state. And in receptiveness, there is no action because you see how that would then be motivated by self or self-identity or self-will. That's the action state. That's transmuting karma. But crown energy is 100% receptive, right? So how could you manifest anything in pure receptivity? It's a part of the spectrum that we don't understand inside commercial spirituality, even down to our language. Yeah, that seems to defy physics. I don't know about that. <laughs> we don't want to get in the science conversation on the podcast. <laughs> but just creating something out of nothing. That's, that's, I guess, more of what I was referring to. Well, I don't know if it's creating something out of nothing. I think pure receptivity is being able to step out of self-egoic creation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really understanding a universal current, sound, sound. You know, it's if your sound is only you, I want to manifest bouncing up against the substratum of reality, all you're going to hear is your own self. We got a problem. We got a real problem. Yeah. 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 Well, try, try, well try selling that. You know, you can't sell that because it isn't an, a new iteration of self. Yeah. You know, it isn't a, um, a like an accolade. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess, um, and somebody listening might be thinking this too, but uh, you're a, by definition, right? You're a spiritual teacher. Yeah. And spiritual teachers have to make a living. So how are you navigating the commercial yoga world with integrity? Yeah, what a great question. And people push me a lot in this space, in the one-on-one space, because they want me to like be their business coach because they too want to be able to develop a business model where they can sell their spiritual teachings. Yeah. And that's something that I'm really cognizant of is to never enter that space and to always say, you know, you have to make your own decision on how you're going to do that it has to be in full alignment with your own transmission. And so things that are very, very important to me is that I put the barrier to entry very high. You know, I stopped teaching like kind of uh, like dropping classes. I stopped contributing to the commercial spiritual model of yoga studios or um, like these big conglomerate thousands of teachers are going to do trainings and then coming back and trying to teach and make money. Like that was something that was very hard for me to witness. And I did do it for several years and needed to get out of it because it wasn't something I could facilitate anymore or be a part of. And then now with Live Lightly and Connect to Spirit, I do um, cheaper pricing, actually, the higher that you get. 
So the longer someone works with you, the cheaper it gets. Yes. What you're saying. Yes. Because I want, <laughs> I want to reward sustainability and sure. I want to be a part of long-term sustainable relationships that that's awesome. grow and evolve together, you know, and, and that's really different. And I, even when I started interfacing with some people that were like giving me business advice, they were suggesting that I flip the pricing model. And I was like, no, no, that's not the point here. You know, the point isn't to have hundreds of thousands of people taking the low hanging fruit. Right. Right. Top down funnel. Yeah. The point is to say like, okay, the barrier of integrity is high and now let's develop a sustainable relationship together from that place together. And, and then, then it, it becomes much more chronically rewarding for me as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Because then all of a sudden, like, like I, like I'll come to tears Cause I get to see someone's life for 10 years and they're doing amazing. <laughs> that's so cool. And that's the work I want to be doing. You know, when someone emails me two years later and they're like, can't believe it. Like I did that thing and this happened and I knew you'd be the only one that knew and you know, there's no price tag on that. That's so cool. Yeah. And like, yeah. of course I have to like pay my mortgage and stuff, but you can do it that way. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. I think that, you know, the training program that live, live lightly offers is really rigorous. And like, I really want you to understand cultural appropriation and I want you to understand where these texts come from and, how you met them and where you met them in your life. And I don't teach set sequences or anything like that because there has to be a level of mastery and integrity in in what a student offers as they step into teacher's seat. The biggest portion of the training is ethics. You know, I think that's very, very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, all that said, you have a book out and available. Yeah. Where can that be found? All over the place, suhunt.com, and then you can find all the places you want to purchase it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to hit on? I mean, I think we could maybe just touch a, a quick little guide, and I think I'd love to hear your opinion too, because we have explored different teachers in different places Yeah. of um, just like red flags and things to look out for, which if you're in a community and no one ever says anything, gossip is different than discernment. And if someone doesn't say anything um, critical of the teacher or the organization, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. And that you really need to understand that this isn't like a blind follow mentality and no teacher is infallible. Mm -hmm. Right. And if the community is treating them like that, that should be a red flag that this is a really big issue and that this is a, a power hungry model where now we have a bunch of followers and a profit and that is a top heavy problem and it's going to lead to either emotional, spiritual or physical abuse. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, red flags. Here's like a little one, but I think it's like a good one to pay attention to. You go into a class, like a drop in class or whatever, mm-hmm. and the teacher practices with everyone. Yeah. And that might sound weird to someone here, but they're teaching then. They're not practicing then. And if they're practicing with you during that class, then they're not practicing on their own. Mm -hmm. Totally. 
So demoing is one thing. I I totally hear you. But like actually staying on your mat and practicing. They're also not doing any pranayama during that time either because they're having to talk throughout their entire practice. Right. Yeah. So for me, me personally, that, that's a red flag. Some people that might not bother, but I think it's something to look at. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also, you know, you want to be close to people in the community. Like, you know, I've had people come up to me when I've been in student seat with other students and ask, like, did so-and-so say this to you? Did so-and-so ask you to have sex with them? Right? Things like that. That straightforward. You want to be able to have conversations. That's what Sangha is. Sangha isn't like, oh my God, I'm so blessed to be here. Blessed you, blessed me, blessed all of us. No, it's deep, deep, integrated, open conversations about what's going on, what you're working through, and that there's... uh, integral space held for each other right and so you want to be able to talk to someone about things that are going on if you can't do that with other community members then you need to get out of there Mm -hmm. Uh, be wary of name droppers yeah (laughs) totally i think that's one to be wary of uh people have like weaponized their previous trainings or teachings or things they've read or whatever Mm -hmm. weaponized is like a I did this, you didn't, I'm better than you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. These, those are all kind of like apparent. Yeah, you definitely want to be looking out for those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think in terms of is this a sustainable well is one, look at the size of the business and you know, two, look at the people that work for them and three, look at the places that they've taught and worked themselves and you want to know if their business is net positive. You know, you want to know if you're actually getting a transmission that is of abundance, not not just because they're teaching um, low-hanging fruit to thousands of people. Right. You're right. We really need to, like, up our consumerism of spirituality, and, and that will change the market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's just, this question just popped into my head. It might be weird. I don't know. Would you study with a teacher in debt? No. No. Yeah. So this is part of root deprivation and why I wanted to really look at money, sex, power, because there's so much conversation and I call it um, in the book, uh, lack based abundance, where there's a veneer that this is really successful and that this is doing really, really well and that their vanity metrics are doing really, really well. And that doesn't actually show the pranic integrity of the organization or the teachings themselves. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. And so so that, that was what I thought too. Something. <laughs> For real, I mean, I would say no. Like, yeah, just hard no. Yeah, I think that that those are all things you want to vet and be really discerning about. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could just probably have this be a three-hour podcast. <laughs> I know you're looking over at me trying to wrap up, but I just no, no. I just like want to make sure in terms of the commercial space and. You want to, I think it's really important too, and I did this early on, which was go to a lot of um, conflicting teachers workshops where they, they aren't from the same lineage and they have different ideas so that I could really sort of dip my toes in and um, not say this style is better or this method is better and really have more of a amalgamation of different ideas coming together Mm -hmm. um, and not be just like all in one side of the court. Imagine if people did that with like religion too. Yeah. I mean, obviously I would be super pro that. Yeah. 
That's interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes like I would go and take a master teacher's workshop that, you know, I didn't have any intention on teaching that method. No intention on teaching that method, not to get the cert, not to become the teacher. Like to literally just be like, what do I fucking think? (laughs) You know, what do I think of this whole thing? Right. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I think that's really valuable I think that's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You could apply that mentality or logic to everything. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the last thing I'll say, you know, for this episode, because there'll probably be more, (laughs) is uh, like spirituality isn't special. And that's like something that I really talk about with my teachers that have come through my programs, you know, is that the the very last ethic is that you're not special, you know, and that this isn't special. This is something that dramatically helped you become more ethical out in the world, more, more in line with your own issues and things that you'd like to work for, through moving forward, you know, mm-hmm. and this ve- that was the vehicle for you. You know, I think sometimes uh, religion or spirituality... Th- it gets this like sort of special glow to it. And that's what's really sellable, you know, but ordinary is profound. Simple doesn't sell. Bingo. Yeah. So if it doesn't contain those things inside what you're buying, now I'm not demonizing buying things, right? If, if it doesn't contain that kind of like ordinary rigor and simplicity, and everything's shiny and you got to get the right earrings and the right turban and all the kind of stuff. It's a clear indicator you're in a weird space. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think you're, you're spot on with that. Okay, great. I think that's a wrap for today. Yeah. That's a good spot as any. All right. Well, Thank you for listening to the Live Lightly podcast this week. We'd love to hear what you think. Uh, yeah, comment on this one. Tell us what you think. Uh, we're 100% open. Yeah, last yeah. week we had people chime in about uh, some of the stuff and, and gave us some info that we were unsure on, and it was super awesome. So yeah, definitely. If, you, if you got anything, hit us up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's greatly appreciated. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Live Lightly podcast. If you loved this episode, please download and subscribe. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and your main takeaways from this episode. Tag us on Instagram and Facebook at LiveLightly underscore. We will then reshare your takeaways and insights. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information and education only. Live Lightly is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.